0: Welcome to the first ever episode of Because of This and That. We run around the internet so you don't have to. I'm your host, H. Miller, and on today's episode we're going to be looking at why stupid people think they're wicked smart. This is a phenomenon that's been around for, well, probably as long as there's been people uh, that we've observed that... Well, stupid people think they're smart, and smart people think they're stupid. Or as Shakespeare put it a little bit more eloquently in As You Like It, Act 5, Scene 1, The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. So before we hop into looking at some of the reasons why stupid people think they're wicked smart, I want to first acknowledge that stupidity being smart, this whole concept of intelligence isn't a fixed entity. It changes over your lifetime and it fluctuates with the environment, with a specific task, with the domain knowledge, um, like if it's science or math or history, and a whole lot of other factors. So talking about stupid people is really wrong because we're all stupid at, at certain points in our, our, our the heh, yep see like right there um, we're all stupid at certain points in our existence and with certain activities especially things that we're, we're starting out that are brand new so exhibit a this entire podcast <laughs> um, we're going to look at three reasons why smart people uh or why people I don't even know what to call it anymore because it's not even lesser intelligence. Um, Why people who perform badly, is how the psychologist would say it, think that they're performing better. Um, And so there's three things we're going to look at. We're going to look at the Dunning-Kruger effect. We're going to look at the big fish little pond effect. And we're going to look at beginner's luck. So we're going to start out with the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is something that you may have heard of because popular attention has really started to be drawn around the Dunning-Kruger effect and and lots of people are, are talking about it and, and referring to it. The Dunning-Kruger Effect is named after two researchers, Dunning and Kruger, and they first published a paper around this fact in 1999. Um, I think it's kind of funny that it's called the Dunning-Kruger Effect because Kruger is actually the first author on this paper, not Dunning. So I guess when they went to name it, they went in alphabetical order. But they tested people's perception on how skillful, skillful there's a word, uh, they were in the areas of determining whether something was humorous or not. They hijacked some LSAT questions and used those to determine logical reasoning, which everybody who's taken the LSAT is like having an anxiety attack at this juncture, because uh, I know that those are, those are very painful uh, for those who had to go through that. And they also looked at testing their grammar, so giving them some sentences that were wrong and and having them try to correct them. Now, I'll be honest, I probably wouldn't do well in any of these categories, but maybe I wouldn't do as badly as the people who they looked at did. So they found that those who were in the 12th percentile thought that they were actually in the 20... No, the 26th would have been better. It was the... It was the 62nd percentile. By the way, I have dyslexia, and so I often read things wrong, which is which is going to be entertaining for everybody. So if you think about your standard distribution curve, that's basically going from one tail to right in the middle. It's sort of the equivalent of a student who's getting an F in a class thinking that they're going to get a C. So that's a really drastic, disparate and I can tell you working in education for pretty much my entire existence, um, being involved in it either as a student and as a teacher and um, in academic support, this phenomenon happens. I, I can't count on one hand the number of times that I've had a student who's been like, no, no, I'll be fine, I'll be fine, and they, they end up with an F. So um, yeah, uh, I have some anecdotal evidence to support that idea. And what Kruger and Dunning came up with to explain this phenomenon was something called the dual burden. They said, on the one hand, people that are unskilled, they're going to make a lot of errors. So it's just like they're, the fact that they just keep making errors because they're unskilled and they don't know what they're doing. But they also said that their inability to identify how badly that they were doing that was due to a lack of metacognition so that they couldn't realize how badly they were performing. The simplest definition of metacognition, if you haven't heard of it before, is thinking about thinking. It's our ability to stop and reflect on what we're doing and how, how we're approaching information, to stop and recognize our emotions, our cognition behind things. It's our self-awareness. So if you're not able to look at yourself and say, i'm I'm really bad at this. That's a metacognitive skill. So it made a lot of sense that they said this and and they actually proposed, and there's some evidence to support this, that the only way to to fix this level of inability to recognize incompetence was actually to make the person more competent because then they had a better uh understanding of what the task was. They had a better understanding of what they needed to do. And they followed through more effectively. So that's kind of the basic hypothesis that they set forward. And the thing that I love, I think my favorite thing about their entire study was that their, their final words in their discussion, which I'm actually going to read to you, I think are just hysterically brilliant. So they wrote this. That worry is that the article may contain faulty logic. Methodological errors or poor communication. Let us assure the readers that, to the extent this article is imperfect, it is not a sin we have committed knowingly. And I love that because they're basically admitting that the that the Dunning-Kruger effect is happening in their paper. (laughs) Because this was the first time this was being studied, so they're kind of acknowledging that like they may have messed up, and they don't they don't even know what they messed up because Dunning-Kruger effect. And lots and lots of research has been done since 1999 on the DKE, as it's known in the field, and it holds up uh, in lots of different circumstances, even testing things like motor skills. So can you hit a target with, like, electronic target with an electronic, like, gun or mouse or whatever? So the Dunning-Kruger effect... Is definitely a thing. Like, nobody at this point can say that it's not a thing. It's a thing. But what's definitely up for debate and what people have struggled with is what's the cause behind it? This idea of this lack of metacognition has particularly been something that people have investigated. And while the studies seem to say that that is a component of what's going on. It seems that there's some other factors that are that are coming into play. So, in particular, I looked at—I'm looking through my citations now. Where is it? A paper that looked at clarifying the role around metacognition, and this was in 2019 that this was published, and it's in the it's in the citations. I always give citations. there up on my blog. Um, which you can check out at becauseofthisthat.com. There's no ampersand in that. It's just becauseofthisthat.com because you can't put ampersands in URLs. Uh, by the way, ampersand is just a really fun word to say. So just 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 say that a few times while I figure out where the heck I was. Um, okay, so this was Macintosh et al., so they looked at a couple things, one of which Dunning and Kruger had already talked about in their article, which is the possibility that regression toward the mean is what's causing this. But one of the other interesting things that, that this article discovered was this thing called that they call a performance artifact, which is the idea that if statistically you make more errors, right, so if you're in that like 12th percentile, then you're going to assume that more of them are Right just because you got so many wrong. So in other words, you're kind of, you're statistically sort of looking for your own average. And if you screwed up, like, say, let's say you screwed up, what, like 80% of the time, you're going to underestimate that. You're going to be like, no, I probably screwed up 50% of the time, right? Like, just in your own head, you, you can't fathom you being that bad, it's kind of true at the other end as well where you can't fathom yourself being that good. And so they actually talk about, I think this is them. Uh, oh no, this is from the Dunning-Kruger effect paper. Uh, so they talk about this false consciousness effect. This is the effect kind of on the other side of the the spectrum if you're in like the 90th percentile or 95th percentile where you're going to assume that your peers performed as well as you did so you, so we do see sometimes, although although people on the higher end of the scale are more accurate, they do sometimes rate themselves lower than their actual performance. Again, because of this like kind of performance artifact, where like I can't be that bad and I can't be that good, <laughs> so people kind of um, end up over or underestimating based on that. All of these experiments with the Dunning Kruger effect were constructed to have minimal feedback. In other words, participants didn't get, you know, if they were doing like a humor session, the participants were rating the humor, but they were doing it in a vacuum. They didn't have other people's input or get to see the reactions of, say, judges or somebody when they presented something they thought was funny. So they didn't have any social comparisons, which would allow them to recalibrate their understanding of their performance, right? If you, you do something, you hand it over to somebody, and they're like, yeah, this is this is terrible. This is the, we can't use this. Then then you know where you stand. And so this idea of social comparisons should according to the Dunning-Kruger Dunning-Kruger effect should cause them to recalibrate their understanding and rate themselves more accurately. But cue the big fish little pond effect because that's what Big Fish Little Pond is is actually going to show, is this interesting interaction with social comparisons, which is really what you think of, you know, when you think of Big Fish Little Pond, if you're that, if you're a big fish in a little pond, you're like king of the marshes or the pond or the swamp or you know, whatever you're in. And of course, there's also the reverse. There's small fish in a big pond. So the origin of this phrase is, kind of interesting. We don't know exactly where it came from or when it started, but the earliest printing of the phrase came from the Galveston Daily News on Tuesday, June 28, 1881. This article was entitled Galveston Undertakers. Uh, I have the link to it. It's, it's worth a read. It's very colorful in the way that it calls out a group of a group of people involved in Galveston's upper echelons, like probably businessmen politicians, it doesn't say specifically who, but they were basically responsible for the death of the Palmer-Sullivan Railroad Project, which both the city and local local businessmen and stuff had invested in, and it, it died. Um, so I'll read you just like a sentence or two of this article. It's, it's really, it's quite fun. Um, I'm a big fan. But there have been some very poor sticks with their fingers in the Palmer-Sullivan pie, its volunteer friends and so-called advocates who have not failed to improve every opportunity to deal the project a quiet stab in the back. These people we have always with us here in Galveston. They are immense on committees. They are likewise splendid at a funeral. And then I'm going to jump down. In themselves, they are simple accidents. They are big fish in a small pond. They feel crowded now. And how would it be with them had Galveston 25 feet of water on the bar and were really the virtual terminus of the Paro narrow gauge railway system? So, yes, he's he's a little displeased with their existence. Uh, And generally, it's an insult of some time. If you're a big fish in a little pond, that's an insult. But when it was sort of co-opted, this expression, by the field of psychology, Marsh and Parker in 1984 did the co-opting, and they turned it into an effect. So the Big Fish Little Pond effect really deals with the way that we perceive ourselves in academic situations, which is coincidentally enough called academic self concept so, when you think about yourself as a student, we all have uh, an image in mind, and there's actually four different components of academic self concept. And I've checked to make sure I get this right. There is social academic self concept, and that's what it sounds like it's your understanding of you as a student compared to your peers, there's criteria which is your abilities evaluated against an objective criterion like a rubric. Uh, there's absolute which is really sort of the person's overall sense of self and then there's there's individual which is you comparing yourself to your past performances. A group of researchers out of Germany in 2018 took a look at German school age students and looked at all of their grades across all the courses they were in. And what they found out was that grades corresponded to all four different types of academic self-concept, which makes sense because as a student, your grade is your, your general anchor to where you are, where you are in the class, where you are in understanding the content, who you are as a student, right? We hear many students talk about like, I'm an A student, and if they don't get an A, it really detracts from their their sense of academic self. That made a lot of sense, and then they started digging into all of the four concepts, and what they found was all had a relationship with average classroom achievement, but the social one was the strongest statistically in its relationship. So where this plays into Big Fish Little Pond is this idea that Let's say you take two students, and they both have the same grades, but one of them is in a classroom where they're at the top of that bell curve. They're the best student in that class. And the other one is in a class that's a high-achieving class, and they are maybe not the lowest, but at least toward the end. What will happen is that the self-concept of the student, particularly the social aspect, because this is logical, is going to be inflated for the student who's at the top of their class, and it's going to be deflated for the student who's at the bottom of their class. In other words, if you're that big fish in that little pond, you're going to think you're a better student than you actually are. If you're a little fish in a big pond, you're going to think you're a worse student than you actually are. And so this is another one of those perception twists that causes people who are really maybe not performing that great when you look at a large sample size, but they think they're doing really well because they're in that small pond. They're in a situation where they don't have a lot else to compare to. And big fish, little pond effect really feeds into social comparison theory, which basically talks about this idea that as humans, we are always looking at ourselves in terms of others' opinions and others' abilities and that we're really consciously and continually and subconsciously and continually asking am i good enough to be here like am i su- am i in the place that i'm supposed to be and this makes sense as social organisms right we need to we need to add value to the societies and if we are not performing at least you know, in the middle of the pack of where everybody else is performing, then we are likely to, to feel like, no, I shouldn't be here. Um, you're going to feel worse about yourself than under, under other circumstances. So this is, the, I love this because Denning-Kruger effect says, if you give people this feedback, this social feedback, they won't overestimate their abilities. And it turns out that, like, that's true, but it sort of depends on the circumstances. So if you took somebody who's performing in that 12th quartile and put them with people who are performing in, like, the 10th quartile, they're still going to think they're geniuses. And, and then the reverse is true, too. You know, if you take somebody who's performing in, like, the 80th or 90th percentile. Did I say quartile before? Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Percentile. <laughs> um, then and you put them in with people that are performing at the 90th, they're going to think they're idiots. So again, our perceptions about our abilities and our intelligence is really, really heavily influenced by the people around us. And then the next thing we're going to talk about is beginner's luck. It's actually the last thing we're going to talk about. Uh, and beginner's luck is an interesting phenomenon because it it sort of pulls in everything we've already been talking about. And I'll be honest, I couldn't find a lot of research on Beginner's Luck, so we're gonna sort of make this, uh, uh, Heather makes connections that probably are there. Occasionally I'll do entire episodes where it's just me hypothesizing, hypothesizing? I don't know why that sounded weird, uh, things. And so this is gonna be one of those. So to kind of dig into Beginner's Luck, I wanted to do a little bit of etymology first because I love etymology. I think it's so cool. And luck itself comes from around the 15th century when they were borrowed into English um, from, from the Germanic gluck, um, which I'm sure I'm saying wrong, but, you know, I haven't had a lot of German. Uh, and so when it was borrowed into the English, we're pretty sure it was borrowed as like a gambling term that it was used to talk about games of chance. That's really kind of where the idea of beginner's luck has most of its uh, linguistic usage is around this idea of games of chance as opposed to games of skill. Although it's since been broadened out to like anything where you have a beginner who's doing better than an expert, you can call that beginner's luck. So In terms of games of chance, probably the cause for beginner's luck is purely statistical, right? So you know from, like, I don't know, middle school or possibly college math, if you flip a coin five times, you can end up with five heads. Even though if you do it for enough times, you'll get to 50. In any given isolated incidents, you have an equal chance of getting both. Or either, not both, <laughs> unless you're really good at landing it right on the right on the edge. Uh, you have a you have a good chance of getting in either, uh, so you can end end up with a statistical streak. So that's one reason that causes beginner's luck. Uh, some of the other reasons that they talk about is that beginners have reduced anxiety. They can operate more on instinct. Their working memory isn't cluttered up with. Everything that they're paying attention to. And working memory is one of the important factors in intelligence. We know that if we improve your working memory, you're going to do do better in in assessments of intelligence. And if your working memory is dampened, you're going to do worse in in areas of, of intelligence. And working memory is really the ability to select what things you're going to process and pay attention to. And generally speaking, depending on the study, you can hold about four to seven things in your working memory at a time. So really consciously like paying attention to to about four to seven things. So it's limited in what you can do with it and it's easy to overload it or distract it. So if you're an expert and you're paying attention to all of the different aspects of a, of a skill, it makes sense that your working memory is going to be a little more overloaded than a beginner. And that allows them to operate a little bit more on, on instinct. So that's those are all great possibilities, but I'm going to add in another one. I'm going to add in the idea that for an expert, every action that they make on something that they are trying to do that they have expert status in, they are trying to preserve what the equivalent is of their academic self-concept. So if we go back to thinking about Big Fish, Little Pond, if you're at the top of your game There is this severe anxiety that comes with messing up, and so they're facing a really terrifying social comparison. So one of the reasons why beginner's luck may be a phenomenon is not because beginners do well more often, but because experts fixate on any moments in time where somebody they perceive to be less skilled is doing better than they are because it's an attack on their academic self-concept. That's my vote for the biggest contributor to beginner's luck uh, is that it's really the experts who are being biased against the beginner's decent-ish performance because it's such a threat to their, to their concept of themselves. So to wrap up, I just want to say that, you know, I am, I am facing a Dunning-Kruger effect right now. This is my first podcast. I'm sure it's an utter disaster but I'm also facing it in my life as a writer. I've been working on writing long enough that I know how bad I am. I've taken a few classes, so I've gotten an opportunity to do that that uh, academic self-concept comparison, the social aspect of it. You know, so I've I really gotten to the point where any kind of beginner's luck has run out, and I am I am struggling vitally. And I think most people quit doing things when they get to that point. When they get to the moment where they're out of like the 12th percentile, right? Their skills have increased so that maybe they're like a C in whatever they're doing, and they're looking around at the rest of the bell curve and they're seeing how much further they have to go to succeed, and it doesn't doesn't feel worth it. That's I think that's when you quit. Um, and so I've been trying really hard not to quit. I've been trying to drag myself through some stuff, but. It's really it's really really hard when you when you know exactly how much work it takes to get to that B or to get to that a level and you know that you just have to like suck it up and keep doing it because that's the only way to get better um, so yeah <laughs> I, sure I'll I'm sure I'll figure it out. I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will get there. Um, I'm also looking forward to going through the learning curve on podcasting. Uh, I'm looking forward to lots of great ideas from all of you on what I should be doing and comments on the show, what you like, what you'd like me to adjust. So, Definitely give me a shout out. You can find me on all the social medias at HMillerWriter because, yep, that's what I hope to be. Again, you can go to our website and leave a comment there. It's becauseofthisthat.com. Remember, there's no ampersand. Or you can email directly at HMillerWriter at gmail.com. Um, but I encourage you to head to the website, check out the stuff that's there. Tell me what you want to do for future topics. I think next week we're going to talk about why things are so dang adorable. Uh, I think that will be a lot of fun. Um, and shout out to my father who uh, helped me do some research on uh, on all of these lovely topics. And I look forward to not seeing you, not hearing you, but you know, yelling into the void next time. But I hope you get in touch before then. Before I sign off, I just want to take a moment to recognize the fact that I am recording this first podcast in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has hit the U.S. particularly hard, and also in the midst of an outcry for social justice, where racism is really starting to be acknowledged as a systematic phenomenon, not only in the U.S., but around the world. Uh, And I, I want to acknowledge that a lot of people right now are, are struggling. They are struggling with the physical nature of survival in really difficult, uncertain economic and health times. They're also struggling with the emotions of, of being heard and being understood. And so I really just want to, want to recognize that we're all coming from, from a place where we're trying to reckon with ourselves, our community, and what is the best way forward. So I won't be addressing those topics necessarily directly on this show. I'll certainly talk about them if they're relevant to whatever we're discussing. But I do want to encourage all of you to make good decisions for yourself and your community based on a holistic look at the data and at people's experiences so that you really, really do understand what what the issues are and and what's at stake, which is people's lives, people's livelihoods, and their sense of self, which is critical for all of us. I wish you a lovely week. Happy listening.